Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Well, this is the first Tuesday of 2024, Nikki, and we're launching the year with a podcast about what the Bible really says about the three angels' messages. Is that triggering at all? (laughs) (laughs) It's a funny way to start the year. It is a funny way. With the core of Adventism, with their self-proclaimed gospel. So, before we start... I want to remind you all that you can access all of our online materials by going to proclamationmagazine.com. You can sign up there for our weekly proclamation email, and you can find links to this podcast, to our YouTube channel, to our new video podcast on our former Adventist commentary on the Sabbath school lessons, and to our online articles. You can also donate there using the donate tab. Your donations to Life Assurance Ministries will help us continue to produce videos, podcasts, articles, our yearly conference, and they also help support the growing Brazilian outreach led by Debbie Buffoni. We're grateful for all of you who partner with us. And now, Nikki, I have a question for you. Okay. (laughs) As an Adventist, what did the Three Angels' messages mean to you? So as an Adventist, I would not have been able to tell you what each of those angels' messages were. I knew that they were related to Adventism. Mm -hmm. I knew they were related to what God told Ellen. It was like we, as the remnant church of the last days, (laughs) had special information that God gave to Ellen White to proclaim to the world before Christ came back. And that message was contained in those three angels. Like I said last time, I wouldn't have known what chapter it was in. I didn't always pay attention to that kind of stuff. I wouldn't have known what each one was proclaiming. I knew it had to do with the Sabbath, mm-hmm. and I knew it had to do with coming out of apostate Christianity, a.k.a. Sunday keepers, <laughs> yes. as we would call them, uh-huh. because we believed if you didn't keep Sabbath, then you kept Sunday. Yes. Which that's isn't true. isn't language that Christians use. No. They might refer to Sunday as Sabbath, those of them who have kind of a covenant background, but they don't call it Sunday keeping. That's pretty yeah. unique to Adventism. But anyways, I digress. I just knew that it was unique and that we had the special information that unlocked the meaning in that text and that the world could not know what that's about <laughs> without our prophetic insight and that it was our responsibility to tell people about it. There was a lot of guilt associated with that, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. What about you? You know, I did know they were from Revelation 14. And I did read them at some point or some points, and I did study them in school, but I couldn't have actually told you what each one was. Okay. You know, really, Nikki, I didn't really decipher the three angels' messages in terms of their unique, identifiable Adventist interpretations until we did our own podcast here on the fundamental beliefs. That's when I really started separating out the three angels' messages in my head so I could tell you where one started and ended and the next one began and ended and Mm -hmm. what they were actually trying to say from an Adventist perspective. Isn't that crazy? Because the three angels' messages are the heartbeat of the Adventist gospel. Absolutely. And we couldn't have taught them. I know. Isn't that funny? I mean, it's really ironic. And yet, everywhere you look from the general conference on down to individual churches to individual independent Adventist organizations, they almost always have some form of the three angels in their logos. 
Yeah, they do. They're everywhere. They absolutely are. In fact, I remember one year we had a white elephant Christmas game here at your house. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with a a box that had three little angels in it. (laughs) And they were... Christmas tree decorations, and they were lovely, and they were handmade in a third world country among people who had been rescued out of something I don't recall now, but they were darling. I could not hang all three of them up at a time. I was like, we'll do a couple or maybe one, but I am not putting three angels on my Christmas tree because, so funny. because it is such a picture in my head of all of the different... Adventist churches, and I, I've been to yeah. a lot of them because I've moved around so much. They all had them in some form on the bulletin Absolutely. or in the stained glass or on the door. They're there. Yes, the General Conference logo today includes flames on each side of a cross on top of a Bible. And the flames are on each side of the cross, and there's three of them, and they're curved in a way to sort of suggest wings. Mm hmm. They're definitely a reference to the three angels. And you know, I have a funny memory. It's funny to me now. When I worked briefly at the quiet hour, it was just a matter of like two and a half or three years in the 80s. It was interesting to me that they had a three angels logo. Now they've since had that logo redesigned. But when I was there, they were little round bodied angels with little stripes. And I always called them the honeybees. (laughs) They had stripes, huh? Yeah, they did. There were three of them. And I'm not exactly sure who designed that logo, but they were the three angels and mm-hmm. it was their version. They're everywhere. Yeah. Well, Three Angels Broadcast Network. That's, Absolutely. That's the Adventist television network. Yeah. And you know, the irony about that is that it's actually an independently owned network. Is it? But the Adventists definitely embrace it and use it and work with them. Well, absolutely, because we know that if they don't approve of something, they certainly won't let you put your anything that resembles them on it yeah, without exactly. suing you. <laughs> yes, exactly. But there we go. The three angels are everywhere. They advertise and identify Adventist organizations. So we are launching into the part of Revelation 14 in our study today that actually deals with the original three angels. And you might say... <laughs> Why were these three angels picked out of a chapter that have at least six or seven angels? And my answer is, I have no idea. Well, these angels have a very specific message, and it's all contained in one scene, one vision. That's it. This is the second part of Revelation 14. And as we mentioned last week, the first five verses are the first vision John has that's recorded in this chapter. The three angels here are his second vision. And then after these three angels, there's more angels, but it's the third vision. So we're just going to deal with this vision. And I think you're right that that's probably why these were selected because they're part of a vision. They're part of a distinct pericope in this chapter that's not carried over into the next one or begun in the previous section. Even the saying, the three angels' messages, is not inspired scripture. That's just the heading that that, that people <laughs> yes. put on the chapter, That's on that true. section. Mm-hmm. That's true. So why don't we read the three angels and their messages before we talk through it some more? So beginning in verse 6, 
Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, and he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. This is really quite an interesting passage coming from my perspective as an Adventist. I want to start by reading the fundamental belief number 13 of the Seventh-day Adventist organization. Okay. It's called The Remnant and Its Mission, and this is the fundamental belief where the church authorities have decided to more or less apply and explain their version of the three angels. I'm just going to read this fundamental belief. The universal church is composed of all who truly believe in Christ, but in the last days, a time of widespread apostasy, a remnant has been called out to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This remnant announces the arrival of the judgment hour, proclaims salvation through Christ, and heralds the approach of his second advent. This proclamation is symbolized by the three angels of Revelation 14. It coincides with the work of judgment in heaven and results in a work of repentance and reform on earth. Every believer is called to have a personal part in this worldwide witness. I want to point out that in the book, Seventh-day Adventists Believe, where the 28 fundamental beliefs are stated and explained for the members of the organization, this chapter is one of the most dependent in the entire set of of fundamental beliefs. It's one of the most dependent upon Ellen White, because the Adventist take on these three angels has nothing to do with what they say in the Bible. The book explaining this doctrine to the members, the doctrine on which I just read, does not contain any footnotes from Ellen White and attempts to make it look like it's all from the Bible. It makes me pretty angry, Nikki, when I when I look at it and I, I read these words that this proclamation is symbolized by the three angels of Revelation 14 coinciding with the work of judgment in heaven. <laughs> no, that's fiction. Yeah. It's fantasy fiction. You know, the mission statement of the Adventist Church reads... The mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to proclaim to all peoples the everlasting gospel in the context of the three angels' message of Revelation 14, 6 through 12. Now, hold on. The gospel is clarified in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 5. This is not the gospel. This is a gospel. Yes. And that's in the text. 
That's right in verse 6. It says the angel flying in mid-heaven had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth, not the eternal gospel. There's a specific message that was given. And Gary articulated this well in his teaching at the Word Search Bible Study. And you can find that on the former Adventist Fellowship YouTube channel. It's the Word Search number 36 for the Revelation series. And he said that the word gospel has inherent in it the idea that there is both good news and bad news that the good news exists because there is bad news. And so we have these three angels moving over the earth and they're being told to fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. They're being told to worship him. So they're being called to repentance. This is a very specific moment in history with a very specific message. This is not the same thing as the saving gospel that we read about that was given to the church through the apostles who were taught by Christ himself. And I think this is why when you ask an Adventist, what is the gospel? They're not entirely sure what to say. Some of them will even say the three angels message. Yes, that's true. That's a really good point. And then Adventists take the messages of these three angels, which have an everlasting gospel, and impose their own meaning on it. So it bears no resemblance to what is actually stated here in Revelation. In the end, their gospel that they apply to these three angels is a made-up fiction that has nothing to do with what the Bible actually teaches. It's interesting that on page 196 of the book, Seventh-day Adventists Believe, there is this sentence, these three messages comprise God's answers to the overwhelming satanic deception that would sweep the world just before Christ's return. And I want to say... Have you ever heard people who accuse other people of exactly what they're doing? Yeah, gaslighting. Yeah. And that's what we see here in this book, Seventh-day Adventists Believe. They're gaslighting Adventists by applying a meaning to these three angels that's not there, but then using the words that Christians would understand and say, oh yes, satanic deception just before Christ's return. Well, There is a satanic deception Mm -hmm. just before Christ's return. It's being explained in the book of Revelation. It's not what Adventism is teaching it is. No, and the Adventists teach that that first angel's message went forth in 1844. It was their response to failed date setting. Yes. So they come along, read through Revelation, clear through 13, come to 14 and go, oh, yep, three angels happened in 1844. Yeah. And chapter and verse for that? It's clear in the context of where we're at in Revelation and what's going to unfold here as we read that that hour of judgment is against unbelievers. That's right. But the message of the Adventists' first message is that the hour of judgment is the time when Christ begins to judge believers. That's right. To determine whether or not they are safe to save. That is not in the text. That is not in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture. Uh -uh. In fact, we read that when we come to faith, we pass out of judgment. That's right. John 5, 24. So, in Councils for the Church on page 58, Ellen identified the three angels, not as angels, but as Adventists who accept the light of her revelations and go out to tell the world. Now, here's what she says in Councils for the Church. 
The three angels of Revelation 14 represent the people who accept the light of God's messages, and that's actually her interpretations that Mm -hmm. she's left in her legacy of books, who accept the light of God's messages and go forth as his agents to sound the warning throughout the length and breadth of the earth. Christ declares to his followers, ye are the light of the world. That's a little bit of a proof text. (laughs) Yes, it is. But she's applying this to Adventists and saying they're the ones who are going to declare the three angels' messages. Mid-heaven. I'm sorry. Mid-heaven. Yes. Well, she says more about that, and it gets even more confusing. She says in early writings, I saw a company who stood well-guarded and firm, giving no countenance to those who would unsettle the established faith of the body. God looked upon them with approbation. I was shown three steps, the first, second, and third angel's messages. Said my accompanying angel, and just by the way, she had an accompanying angel in all of her visions, Can we say familiar spirit? Was it the same angel? Did she ever say? Well, later in her life, she did refer to the handsome young man who accompanied her or who showed her her dreams. She did seem to have a repetitive visit from the same handsome young man. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Said my accompanying angel, Woe to him who shall move a block or stir a pin of these messages. The true understanding of these messages is of vital importance. The destiny of souls hangs upon the manner in which they are received. I was again brought down through these messages and saw how dearly the people of God had purchased their experience. I don't understand. Well, I don't either. And are those the steps to Christ? Well, (laughs) that thought crossed my mind too. I do believe her steps to Christ is a completely separate thing. (laughs) But she does call these three angels' messages three steps. Is it three steps toward the return of Christ? Because I know they believe that they are going to herald that and bring it in. I believe that's exactly what she meant. And then there's one last one here that we're going to read because this is relating to the comment in the Bible that says these three angels are flying mid-heaven with a message for the world. But here is what she says about that. This is from the second volume of Selected Messages, page 387. During the past 50 years of my life, I have had precious opportunities to obtain an experience. I have had an experience in the first, second, and third angels' messages. The angels are represented as flying in the midst of heaven, proclaiming to the world a message of warning and having a direct bearing upon the people living in the last days of earth's history. But get this now, no one hears the voice of these angels, for they are a symbol to represent the people of God who are working in harmony with the universe of heaven. What is the universe of heaven? Well, I picture all of those watching planets. I I agree. She ends with this sentence. Men and women, enlightened by the Spirit of God and sanctified through the truth, proclaim the three messages in their order. So she has just neatly taken us from three angels flying in the midst of heaven to Adventists, men and women, sanctified through the truth, read that, Adventism, proclaiming these messages to the world. 
I did not know these quotes before I was actually researching some of the things she said for this podcast. I did not know that she said no one can hear the angels, but I did know that as I listened to our Pastor Gary teach through this passage, I was surprised when he made a point that everyone can hear the angels and their messages because they're flying in mid-heaven, and the point is it's for the world, and the world can hear. And you know it wasn't only Gary who said that. I listened to S. Lewis Johnson preach through this passage. He made the same point independently. These angels are audible to the world. That makes so much sense because we read early in the book of Revelation, when we got kind of a compressed vision of what was going to take place, we read that the unbelievers on the earth were going to cry out for the rocks to fall on them because the wrath of the lamb and the one who sits on the throne was there. That's right. And I remember thinking, how on earth do they know that? I thought everyone was going to be surprised when Jesus came back, but they know. How do they they know? Yes. Well, the angels are going to tell them. Oh, Nikki, that's a really important insight. These angels are showing up right before the wrath of the Lamb is poured out. Yeah, it's not going to surprise them when that comes. I mean, we see that in the text. And and yes, I, I'm not denying the fact that it is taught in other parts of the New Testament that no one knows the day or the hour and that some people will be going on and giving in marriage and living their life when Jesus returns. And But my understanding of that is that Christ is going to come for the church at a different time when he comes to bring his wrath. I see it that way too, but I'm not going to make that a point of division in terms of the timing of the rapture, but I do agree with you. But in terms of this passage here in Revelation, it's very clear that God is sending a message to the world. He is warning the entire world, not just a group of people. He's not coming to his church and saying, clean it up because his church is already clean. Ellen said that he's coming and that the Adventists are going to be delivering these messages. That's not at all what it says. Not at all. And the three angels' messages of Adventism is all dependent upon Adventists feeling urgent, guilted if necessary, into proclaiming Adventism to the world. And then Ellen goes on to explain her version of these, which we'll talk about as we walk through the passage. This message that Adventism has is not what's here in Revelation. No, and it's important, you know, even if you don't have an Adventist background, I want to just say it's really important to understand the three angels' messages as the Adventists teach it. As you try to reach out to Adventists and talk to them about the gospel, precisely because these messages are what entangle the heart of the Adventist into Adventism. And even if they're not aware of it, because the messages come out of Babylon, keep the Sabbath, keep the Jewish Sabbath, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, keep the Sabbath and receive the seal of God. Don't keep the Sabbath. You receive the mark of the beast and all of God's wrath will be poured out on you. So the idea of leaving a Sabbath keeping church, even if you disagree with vegetarianism or any of the other unique doctrines of Adventism, they're the ones that keep the Sabbath and that's where I'm safe. And so moving from that to going to a church on Sunday where you might receive the mark of the beast is a huge hurdle. And it's an important place to bring a questioning Adventist to and then to take him to the parts of scripture that will undo that, that will unpack that. 
That's so true, Nikki. And as you said, these three angels' messages are the embedded construct of this Adventist message so that the world can't look at this and see that. But Mm -hmm. this is why, this right here is the core of why Adventists hate to study Revelation. Mm -hmm. This is the Adventist gospel. This is the thing that promises they will be punished by God in terrible ways temporarily if they keep Sunday. And it's terribly confusing because by the time you get to the three angels' messages in an Adventist Bible study, you're expected to understand Daniel 8.14 and what happened in 1844 and why we got it wrong and how it's actually about the investigative judgment and Ellen White's vision. And there's so many charts. Yeah. (laughs) So you get here and you glaze over, but you hold on to that fear. Yeah. The fear keeps you in. And keeps you subservient to what Ellen said these angels are really saying. Oh, pardon me, not the angels, but the Adventists who are somehow intuiting this inaudible message. Looking more closely at the actual passage, it's interesting that in the first verse that we looked at, verse 6, John says, I saw another angel, there have been many before, flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth. Now, you know what's interesting, Nikki, is that this is the only time John uses the word gospel. Yeah, that was interesting. I did did not not know know that. that. Never in his gospel, never in his epistles. This is the only place he uses that word. So, what does he mean? If he were Paul, we'd know what he meant. Yeah. Because he identified it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. What does he actually say? Let's unpack what he actually says about this gospel. So, like I mentioned earlier, John is talking about an eternal gospel, and you pointed out that this is the first time he's used that word. The word gospel doesn't mean what 1 Corinthians outlines. The word gospel means good news. It's just a word that he used. And so, this angel has good news that is tied to bad news, but it's an eternal gospel, which is interesting. And Gary pointed out that it's eternal in its validity. This gospel is universal in its scope. It's for everybody here on earth at this time who is in danger of receiving the mark of the beast. And it is judging in its tone. This is proclaimed to those who dwell on the earth, every tribe, language, and people. And when this expression is used in the book of Revelation, it nearly always means the unbelieving world, those who followed the beast. So, this is a message calling people to repent in the middle of this time of trouble. I did not know that that was going to happen. Isn't that interesting? So, God is asking people to trust Him, believe Him, turn and worship Yahweh, the one who created heaven and earth, right up to the very end of the tribulation. Mm -hmm. It's never too late to turn to God, as long as He is offering that. And these angels are that offering He's sending them out right before he pours out his wrath. Truly, all people are without excuse. It's true, just like Romans 1 says. And this particular message, this first angel, says, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Well, Adventists say that means the investigative judgment has started. Hark, hark, 1844, the judgment has come, get ready. But the judgment in Adventism is a judgment of professed believers. Yeah. This is a message to everyone, 
sinners in the world, a warning that they will be judged if they don't worship the true God. And this is not a call to Sabbath keep. This is a call to worship God who made heaven and earth. It's Adventism. It's Ellen White who superimposes that business of the seventh day. And if you remember God as creator, well, then of course you're going to remember that he set apart the Sabbath on the seventh day. That's not in the creation story, by the way, but that's not what this is even saying. I can't prove that this is true of every person who's ever walked the earth, but I believe that general revelation causes each of us to have a moment where we wonder, unless we've been told or indoctrinated, how did I get here? Why am I here? This is a natural question in man. And unfortunately, fallen men often answer it with idolatry, but it's in each of us to wonder how did all this get here? Right. I mean, just looking at the stars, how did this all happen? And to have these angels fly mid-heaven over the land, over all of these unbelievers and say, fear and worship the God who created heaven and earth. This great question, how did we get here? We have a creator and he's coming back with judgment. Fear him and worship him. That's really powerful, Nikki. I don't think it's Hey, by the way, guys, you were supposed to keep the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, No, that's not even in view here. You can't get there from here. You know what I'm saying? Ellen White was completely illegitimate. And that is the core of the fear grip on Adventism. When this angel flies, this is going to be a very strong announcement of judgment. Babylon will be judged. People who worship the beast will be judged. And eternal torment in fire is announced. This angel is proclaiming something that's about to happen and calling people to trust the true God before his wrath is poured out on the earth. And this is audible. This will not be a secret. This is not like if you see the Adventists coming, listen to them. This is something God is sending to the world in his mercy. This is what the Seventh-day Adventist Belief book says on page 198 about this first angel's message. By commanding us to worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water, this message calls attention to the fourth commandment. It leads people into the true worship of the Creator, an experience that involves honoring His memorial of creation, the seventh-day Sabbath of the Lord, which He instituted at creation and affirmed in the Ten Commandments. The first angel's message, therefore, calls for the restoration of true worship by presenting before the world Christ the Creator and Lord of the Bible Sabbath. This is the sign of God's creation, a sign neglected by the vast majority of His created beings. And I want to say, I just want to pull out my hair. (laughs) That's quite angering. Yeah. Adventists have twisted this message away from the announcement that the hour of His judgment against unbelievers is about to arrive— They make it mean the hour of his judgment in heaven has already started, a judgment no one has ever seen anywhere in the Bible, by the way. And they've appropriated this entire thing to mean that believers are being reviewed in heaven, and this review began in 1844. But the passage itself affirms there's nothing remarkable about these angels. Others will follow. This is universal, as you said, Nikki. Everyone hears 1844 wasn't a universal message, but here the emphasis is on judgment and on the judgment of God on the earth, not in heaven in the investigative judgment. 
And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality. So calling an Adventism. I understood this Babylon to be Roman Catholicism and that this wine was her false Sabbath, Sunday keeping, and that this is a call for Christians to finish the Reformation yes. by coming out of the Roman Catholic Sabbath and moving into the the Judeo the, the Sabbath. <laughs> I was going to say Judeo Christian, but it is not. It is Christian. Not. So the Jewish Sabbath. Yeah, that's how I understood this. Leave Babylon. And we were really assiduously taught that. Sunday keepers are Babylon. Mm -hmm. In fact, Ellen even used terms that are not used so much in Adventism anymore, but she called the Protestants who keep Sunday the daughters of the whore of Babylon. Mm -hmm. And we, if we go into Sunday keeping, are leaving truth and walking into Babylon that will be judged and we are becoming daughters of the whore of Babylon. I was actually called the whore of Babylon when I left Adventism. Well, and she did say that we who once had the knowledge of the truth but leave it will be the worst persecutors of those who stay loyal to the Sabbath. All of this is wrapped up in these three angels. You know, it's interesting that my first former Adventist Fellowship Conference, as I was being saved... Uh-huh. <laughs> The phrase that kept going over in my mind, and I've said to you before, I was not a student of the book of Revelation as an Adventist, but the phrase that kept going through my head was, come out of her, come out of her, my people. And I understood it as I had to leave Adventism. I had to leave this false religion, this idolatrous religion, and come to Christ Mm -hmm. alone. And it was the strangest thought just Mm -hmm. running around in my head because how did I find myself here needing to leave the one true truth to follow God? It was so confusing and clear. I understand that. I remember when I realized that Adventism was the world I was being asked to leave. Because, you know, in Adventism, they always said, leave the world, come into the truth, worship God on the right day, leave the world. And I realized that Adventism was that world. It was not the truth. And I had that same feeling of overwhelm and confusion and clarity that everything I had believed to be God's honest truth was a lie. So in this text, Colleen, we know that Babylon is not Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. So what does Babylon represent here? The best way, and I was really thankful that our Pastor Gary was able to outline the idea of Babylon so well. This helped me understand the phrase. He said, the root of Babylon is Babel. Now, we learned Babel. Yeah, we did. (laughs) The Tower of Babel. But you know, I've never known a Christian who called it Babel. No. And I find it really interesting that when you actually call it the Tower of Babel, you can see its relationship to Babylon. But historically, Babylon was built in the area, in the plain of Shinar in Iraq, where the Tower of Babel had originally been built. And so Babylon became, and is used in the book of Revelation as a symbol of humanity united in its attempts to displace God. So there's many ways 
Humanity displaces God. It's all idolatry. But Babylon symbolizes humanity united. And we'll see that as we come into the chapters about Babylon's fall. We'll see that the nations of the world are united around Babylon and what she offers them. And they're united in their attempts to displace God. Babylon historically became the nation, the empire, that head of gold that attacked the southern kingdom of Judah, which was the only remaining part of the nation of Israel at that time, and took her into bondage. Babylon is in the Bible used as a representative of the opponent that vitally destroys the existence of God's people. It's a human enterprise that glorifies itself but opposes God. When we see that Babylon is fallen, it's tempting to want to say, okay, now, is that a city? Is old Babylon being rebuilt? Is it the United States? Is it maybe some other city, a Middle Eastern city? Well, we don't know for sure. But we know that the idea of Babylon is a worldwide idea that unites humanity against God. And this phrase, fallen, fallen is Babylon, I found it really interesting that that phrase echoes both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. First Peter 5, in his letter, Peter writes and makes reference to Babylon, and that is the church from which he's writing. It's understood, basically looking back and understanding that first century, that that was used as a code word at that time for Rome. So at that time, Rome became the enemy of God, and Babylon, as we'll see in Revelation 17 to 19, is an organized city in rebellion against God and allied with the beast and the false prophet. And Gary pointed out, this was very interesting, that at the end of chapter 17 and 18, Babylon falls at the hands of the beast and the false prophet. The very power that they are following is going to turn on them and destroy them. And I love what Gary said when he got to this part. He said, Satan can never keep a conspiracy together for very long. I loved that too. (laughs) Now, he also pointed out that it talks about people drinking of the wine of her immorality or the legacy standard Bible said sexual immorality. And this is kind of a contrast to what we looked at earlier in the chapter when we read that the 144,000 did not defile themselves with women. And this Mm. is kind of one of those places where we get the idea that this is about spiritual idolatry rather than marriage. This idea of spiritual adultery is used throughout the Old Testament as God calls Israel back from its idolatry. And he talks about their idolatry in terms of adultery and says, I have been a husband to you. I have been a father to you and you have betrayed me. That's the legacy of Babylon. Just in closing our discussion about this second angel, this is what Seventh-day Adventists believe, page 199, says about the second angel's message. The wine of Babylon represents her heretical teachings. Babylon will pressure the powers of state to enforce universally her false religious teachings and decrees. Now, just by the way, note that within the Adventist framework, that is a reference to an international Sunday law. And they go on. Babylon falls because she rejects the first angel's message, the gospel of righteousness by faith in the Creator. That wasn't in the text. That wasn't in the text at all. And it wasn't even in the text 
that they themselves wrote about the first angel. And they go on. As during the first few centuries the Church of Rome apostatized, many Protestants today have departed from the great Bible truths of the Reformation. This prophecy of Babylon's fall especially finds its fulfillment in the departure of Protestantism at large from the purity and simplicity of the everlasting gospel of righteousness by faith that once so powerfully impelled the Reformation. The second angel's message will have increasing relevance as the end draws near. I think it's especially disingenuous of them to speak in such vague terms when they're actually saying, leave the Sunday churches. Yeah, they are. Ellen White actually told them to veil this message. She says that Protestants are worse than the heathen, but this we are not to tell them. In Manuscript 17... On page 334, first paragraph, she wrote, In truth, they are worse than heathen, but this we are not to tell them. The clergy consider themselves as teachers, highly religious, and their churches send out missionaries to the work of converting the savages. But to have the implication that a similar work must be done for them, they would consider the worst kind of insult. And she's referring to the preachers of Sunday churches here, and that they're worse than heathen. But don't tell them. And yet proclaim it. Yes. This is why we felt crazy. So this third angel intrigues me. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 again. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, and he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, what's intriguing to me about this is Adventism claims to have the everlasting gospel of the three angels' messages, but I never knew that verse 10 was a part of the three angels' messages. I never knew that they would be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and that the smoke of their torment would go up forever and ever. That's in verse 11. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. The horrible outcome of receiving the mark of the beast in my head as an Adventist mm-hmm. was that I wouldn't be saved. Yes. There was no full conclusion there. That's a great point. There was the knowledge that there's this lake of fire that those who are not saved <laughs> we'll have to endure for a period of time, but I think that I just sort of blocked that out of my thinking. It was either, am I going to be saved or not? And if I receive the mark of the beast, I'm not going to be saved. And that's why it took so long for my husband to get me to go to a Christian church because I didn't want to leave the Sabbath. That was like the last straw. But this goes beyond the moment where they receive the mark of the beast. And this says what will happen to them. And this is talking about conscious eternal torment. This is something that Adventism deliberately suppresses and rewrites because one of their big claims to fame is that they don't believe in eternal torment, in eternal punishment. They believe in annihilation. As you said, there'll be kind of a quick burn when Jesus comes back and just before he makes the new earth, all the wicked, all the evil in the universe will be burned up and gone. Satan will be burned up and gone. Annihilation is the future that I expected would be mine. I hoped it wouldn't be, but I expected it would because I 
didn't think I could actually be saved. Well, and you practiced for it, didn't you? Yes, I did. I used to... <laughs> I'm sorry. I used to stand um, at my father's direction, my father, the old school physical therapist in the Adventist model, who said water therapy is good for the health. And we had a well in our house. The temperature of the well water was about 56 degrees, so it was very cold. And we were instructed to end our showers with three seconds of cold, straight cold from the well. It was miserable, and I hated doing it. But, you know, I was obedient, and I used to think, if I can stand this, it will help me withstand that burn at the end of time. If I can grip my teeth and bear it, it's helping me to withstand what's coming. That's a PTSD thought. Well, yes, I still remember it very vividly. (laughs) That was what we thought. We thought we were going to be burned up quickly because, you know, we really hadn't done anything that bad, but we didn't know. I didn't know. And Adventism suppresses this. And I find this to be particularly egregious because there is a consequence for not embracing the worship of the one true God. There is a consequence for not embracing his provision for us in the Lord Jesus. And Adventism suppresses this in what they call their core central message. And I think one of the horrific things about the Adventist message is the idea that you could be deceived into receiving the mark of the beast. And I think that's a hard one for former Adventists to shake. The mark of the beast is not a deception. And Gary pointed that out again in his teaching on this in Word Search. He says that they'll take the mark deliberately as an act of loyalty to Antichrist in conscious rebellion against God. And we know that when we go back and we read that section in Revelation 13, where it says that it's all those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life who take the mark of the beast. If we're saved, our names were written before the foundation of the earth. And we can know that our Father is going to keep us no matter what. If the church is here, He's going to keep us in salvation. It says in Jude that we are kept for Jesus. Oh, Nikki, that's such an important point. And this was suppressed. We were not taught this. And you know what else? It's important to understand what the Bible says about eternal torment and eternal punishment because it's here because God wanted us to know it. And I have to say, there are former Adventists that we know for whom this doctrine is the thing. This doctrine combined with the knowledge of their depravity and their sin against a holy, eternal, righteous God that caused them to decide they had to put their trust in the Lord and it caused them to be born again. It was this reality. It's that serious whether we trust and believe or not. And it was suppressed to us. And you know, if you're going to use the historical grammatical literary hermeneutic, and you're going to look at the words, and you're going to look at the tenses, and you're going to think about the definitions, it becomes nearly impossible to say that this is temporary or that it's unconscious. The text uses the word tormented. Great Torment is something that happens in our consciousness. It's when we're conscious. That's why we're tormented. Exactly. Because we're aware of it. So these unbelievers are going to experience unending torment, which is felt, experienced, conscious pain. And it occurs in the presence of God and the Lamb. That's hard to understand. How can eternal torment occur in the presence of God? 
and the Lamb, and the angels and the Lamb. We were actually taught, I was taught as an Adventist, that all badness would be burned up, dismissed, gone away, and nothing terrible would ever besmirch the universe again. This is not saying that sin is going to infect our eternal existence with God. This is not saying that. This is only saying that nothing is hidden from the sight of God. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Can we explain this? No. But it was really interesting to me to hear our Pastor Gary compare this passage with what we know from other passages where it says, there's no joy in heaven like the joy among the angels when one sinner repents and comes to the Lord. Luke fifteen ten. If that is true, whatever that is about, our new birth is something that's celebrated by the inhabitants of heaven. Can we see them? No, we can't. But they see us, and God is with us and now in us. And when people are eternally tormented because of their eternal lack of belief, their eternal lack of the new birth, this is not something that goes outside of the notice of God. God is the one in charge of light and dark, death and life. He is the one in charge of hell. It's not Satan. But that doesn't mean that hell is at our doorstep, that we will always be looking at people burning or that the angels will. This is something we can't explain. This is a mystery, but we can know that this is real. One of the points that Gary made in verse 11 is related to this forever and ever. And he said that The expression forever and ever is used seven times in Revelation to describe God. He's the one who lives forever and ever. And we see here the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This is not an easy doctrine to accept. No. When we come out of Adventism, I remember talking to someone and they said, so do you believe in hell now? It's like you don't want to let go of the Sabbath and you don't want to embrace hell. And it is so hard and it is not fun to talk about. It is not fun to explain. But what we know, what we know and what we can hold on to is that God is good. Yeah, He's holy and he's righteous. And hell is the end result of God's wrath. This is where people will end up who remain disobedient to him. And that is a result of his character, of his, of his person, who he is, his attributes in his holiness and in his righteousness, his wrath is a reaction to our sin and our rebellion. And he calls us to be rescued from that. And then he himself Mm -hmm. sends his son to do the rescuing. And he sends these angels to warn the world and remind them right before this wrath is poured out. The text also says that they have no rest day or night. And if they're annihilated, they they do have rest. There is an end. Yeah. But this is teaching eternal restlessness. And here's the thing. This is why we have to do what we're doing. I'm not going to say that God can't save people inside Adventism, but I will say that Adventism does not teach the saving gospel. That's right. I agree. And if you don't believe hell is real, you may not feel a sense of urgency about reaching the lost. But when you understand that this is what's taught in scripture, then you know that you have only your lifetime on this side of eternity to try to rescue people out of that fire. That is so true. And John ends this section with this verse in verse 12. 
Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And once again, this is an Adventist proof text. But the commandments of God in all of John's books, when this word commandments is used, he is not speaking of the law. This is based on the Greek word entola. And this means the teachings, the sayings, the commands, the instructions. The instructions of God to those of us on this side of the cross are not keep the law, keep the commandments, keep the Sabbath. The instructions on this side of the cross are believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the one whom he sent. This is the new commandment that the Lord Jesus gives those who believe. Love one another as I have loved you with sacrificial love. And their faith in Jesus has nothing to do with Ellen White and her prophecies and her counsels. The faith in Jesus is simply that, trusting him, believing him. So before we leave this passage, I do need to read what the Adventists say about this third angel's message, which, as we've seen, is very different from the sanitized version of Adventism. From the book, Seventh-day Adventists Believe, pages 200 and 201, is this statement. The third angel proclaims God's most solemn warning against worshiping the beast and his image, which all who reject the gospel of righteousness by faith ultimately will do. The final issue involves true and false worship, the true and the false gospel. When this issue is clearly brought before the world, those who reject God's memorial of creatorship, the Bible Sabbath, choosing to worship and honor Sunday in the full knowledge that it is not God's appointed day of worship, will receive the mark of the beast. This mark is a mark of rebellions. The beast claims its change of the day of worship, showing its authority even over God's law. God has his children in all churches, but through the remnant church, he proclaims a message that is to restore his true worship by calling his people out of the apostasy and preparing them for Christ's return. I have heard that exact quote from so many people. God has his children in all churches. It's how they push themselves away from the idea that they believe that they're the remnant church and they're the only ones that are going to get saved. If you confront them with that, they will say, God has his children in all churches. They prove text Ellen even. Yes, they do. And did you notice that she refers to the Christians who go to church on Sunday as worshiping a false gospel? Yes, and false worship. You know, she clearly identifies false and true worship as being about a day. It's really important to highlight that, I think, because we have a lot of Adventists who become upset with us for suggesting that Adventism has a different gospel. Ellen White says here that her gospel is different from the gospel of the Christians and that our gospel is false and hers is true. Yes, she does. So all we are doing is agreeing with her. And if you don't like the Adventist gospel, then you need to read the Bible and learn the gospel that the Christians proclaim and choose this day what you'll believe. So that's the three angels' messages. That's the three angels' messages as they appear in Revelation compared with how we were taught them in Adventism. The Adventist version is convoluted, vague, and deliberately twisting of the original meaning. And like you just said, Nikki, 
If you don't like the Adventist gospel, the call is see the real gospel of the scriptures and believe the real Jesus who literally left heaven without ever giving up any of his attributes as God and took on human flesh to take the wrath of God in his flesh on the cross for us so that we can be saved. This message of the three angels is a call to repent, a call to repent of idolatry, repent for those of us who've been Adventist of the idolatry of hanging on to a day as if a day is eternally sacred. A day is a created thing and only God is holy. We are being asked to give up our idolatry of the Sabbath. And ironically, the three angels' messages are really directed toward us because hanging on to a day is putting something in the place of Jesus. Jesus alone is all we need to be saved. We are called to trust Him, to believe Him, to recognize our depravity, to recognize our sin, the fact that we can't please God, we can't be good enough, we can't keep the Sabbath well enough, we can't be sincere enough to merit God's pleasure. We have to believe the Son. We have to receive the new birth through trusting in Him. We have to receive the life He gives us through His death on the cross for our sin, through His burial, and through His resurrection on the third day because His sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our sin. And when we trust Him, He gives us life, eternal life at that moment. And if you haven't trusted Him, if you're still hanging on to the Sabbath as the thing that hedges your bets, what if it's true? Know this, there is only one Savior, and there is nothing we are asked to do besides trust in Him for our salvation. The Sabbath will not ensure salvation, and it can stand in the way of it. Trust Jesus today and you will be able to see that you are living in the full acceptance of the real three angels' messages. Join us next week as we continue to walk through chapter 14 of Revelation. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Music